is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. No deal, the defence merger that's dead in the water. A report cast doubt on Afghanistan's future, while William Hague says there's no change to the 2014 deadline. An enormous amount is still to be achieved, and, and looking far ahead, of course, Afghanistan will still need our help in many ways. And also in 2014, how will Britain mark the centenary of the First World War? So the defence mega-merger is off and the post-mortem has begun. The deal between BAE Systems and EADS would have created the world's largest defence and aerospace company. But it was always a long shot and it collapsed yesterday amid recriminations and finger-pointing between the prospective partner countries. So what or who killed the deal? I'm joined now by James Blitz, defence and diplomatic editor of the Financial Times and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, James Blitz... um, who pulled the plug? Well, most of the papers today say it's Germany and uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel who didn't really want to do it. But I think that's a little bit of um, name-calling by the British and the French, to be honest. I don't think, at the end of the day, that any of the three leaders, David Cameron in Britain, President Francois Hollande in France, or Chancellor uh, Merkel in Germany, really passionately wanted this to go ahead. I think it was in the British interests because the future of BAE is really at stake here. And David Cameron was ahead of the others, I think, in, in trying to push this. But the truth is that the deal, if it had happened, would have created so many political problems and headaches at a difficult time for all three leaders that I just think at the end of the day they were happy to see it die. And what were the main differences they couldn't resolve? Well, for the British, the main concern was that there mustn't be a French and German government stake in the enlarged company that would allow uh, the French and Germans to drive that company in a, in a direction that was against Britain's long-term strategic interests. That was the worry from their side. That there was the concern of Philip Hammond and, 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 and David Cameron was that if that was to happen, we might end up 20 years down the road with the French and Germans doing all sorts of things, like taking the uh, BAE's cyber capabilities out of the country, which they just didn't want to have happen. For the French and Germans, there were other concerns. The Germans never wanted to see a situation where the company wasn't headquartered in Germany. The headquarters were going to be in France and Britain, so that was a problem. They were concerned about job losses. The French, at the end of the day, just didn't want to give up uh, control of the company at a time when President Hollande is saying to his own people, I'm going to re-industrialise France to get us out of the economic mess that we're in. So was it ever realistic? Well, it was certainly realistic as far as the chief executives were concerned, and I think they had basically a, a very good conception, which was that at a time when defence spending around the world is being cut back, the US is cutting back, and the situation in Europe is far too fragmented in terms of defence companies, it was good to get one large piece of consolidation to shift the tectonic plates, have one big company that was going to drive change and have an economy of scale that was going to give some real technological advantage to the Europeans. But the reality is there were so many opponents to this. It wasn't just the governments. There were a lot of shareholders in BAE who were also very unhappy about the idea of, of getting into this merger. And so, in the end, it was a very ambitious, probably very correct attempt to try and get consolidation, but there were just too many hurdles. Christopher Lee, um, how vulnerable is BAE Systems now? It's been vulnerable for six years, um, and it still is more so now. Six years ago, it sold its 20% stake in EADS, which was dumb. 
at the time. It also um, relied too much on its defence contractors. The reason that Prime Minister Cameron liked the idea of this, it allowed uh, BAE Systems really to get a stronger foothold in other markets which EADS would do. Now, having declared that, therefore, uh, there was something else involved, wasn't there? And that's the number of people employed and unemployed. There are probably between 130, 140,000 uh, high-tech jobs apparently involved in this deal in the United Kingdom. So that's another reason that the British government was probably the most enthusiastic of the three. This leaves BAE uh, with unfinished business. The fact that they went into this deal means they needed it, and therefore they cocked up. Therefore, the chief executive and the chairman, you know, they're on the line and they've got a lot of explaining to do. The next stage you've got to watch out for is whether people realise the, the fragile state of BAE and they might start to approach them almost to pick them off. And the most likely thing to happen, perhaps, would be from American companies to come this way, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, um, etc., et General Dynamics even. And, of course, the other one, the, uh, you know, the elephant that we don't talk about, is, is Boeing. So I think BAE is vulnerable in spite of its size and in spite of its order book, and it's, it's, headed, that, it's headed into America. Don't forget it, BAE... In America, 40% of its business is in America. It means the Bradley tank in America, for example. And so it, it is vulnerable because they needed this deal more than EADS. James Blitz, how important is it that Britain has its own independent defence manufacturers? Well, it is important because the UK government has got to make sure that it has access to the kinds of uh, equipment that it will want in the, in, in the future as it goes ahead. Now, of course, it can buy lots of stuff off the shelf and, and that is the way the UK government is going more and more from c countries around the world but when you're looking at defence procurement in the long term you need to make sure that you've got cutting edge capability uh, going forward that you are in areas like cyber that you are into the development of the next generation of fighter aircraft and so on and the situation we've got at the moment is that although BAE is a very, very strong performer in the U.S. and is one of the leading um, customers of the Pentagon, um, the problem that we have is that, you know, on a lot of things, the U.S. doesn't really give us the crown jewels technological um, stuff. For example, the avionics in the F-35 uh, Joint Strike Fighter. And so we need to try to make sure that we have got that kind of capability in this country. Now, I think this deal, if it had gone ahead would have allowed us to develop that with the Europeans, and that is why it's a great pity that it's not happening. So going ahead, what do you think BAE Systems should be doing then? Well, I completely agree with Christopher's analysis that BAE is very much in play now. BAE needed to have this deal. The, the fundamental problem it faces is that def although, it's a very big although it's a very big player in the U.S., defence spending in the US is, 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 is going to sort of tail off because the US is cutting back so much over the next decade and European uh, governments are cutting back. So it's difficult to know. They may have to re reconstruct their strategy. They may have to get into an alliance with an American company, the ones that uh, Christopher has listed. Um, those are the kinds of options. It's in a weak position. You have to remember when you look at the basics of this potential deal, EADS has an order book for its Airbus aircraft of about 500 billion euros. So it comes out of this situation really not very much damaged. BAE is one-tenth of that at 50 billion. It does need to find new partners. James Blitz at the Financial Times. Thanks for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Chabot.
Still to come, we hear from the Foreign Secretary William Hague on the work that still needs to be done to secure the political future of Afghanistan. And an orphan of Islam, one man's story of how he had said no to fundamentalism and joined the British Army. Will Afghanistan be ready to take control of its own affairs once NATO's combat forces leave in 2014? A report this week by the think tank the International Crisis Group claims the country is plagued by factionalism and corruption and is far from being in a position to take responsibility for security. It also said President Karzai's government could collapse after the NATO withdrawal, angering the Afghan government. The NATO Secretary-General, Anjus Rasmussen has also said he did not share its negative assessment. Earlier I spoke to Paul Quinn Judge, the Deputy Asia Director of the International Crisis Group based in Brussels. I asked him to explain the report's findings. Well, we came to the conclusions, uh, which is the easier way to start on the basis of uh, several months of research, um, which produced um, a fairly standard length report for us, which is about 17,000, 18,000 words. Um, therefore, it's a little hard to summarize, even though a lot of media have tried very hard for us. Essentially, we're saying that there are two problems facing the Afghan government in, in the coming years, especially in 2014. It is not just the military issue, the drawdown of NATO and, and uh, U.S. forces from Afghanistan. It's also the political transition. Both of them are crucial. Both of them are interlinked. And both of them need a lot of work by the Afghan government if they're to successfully pass through this very delicate transition. Do you believe that following NATO force departure, the combat troops departing in 2014, there is a real danger that the country could collapse into civil war? There's a danger of many things in 2014. We know already that the Afghan armed forces are not yet considered to be anywhere near uh, capable of, of conducting uh, large-scale operations on their own. Um, the, the Afghan government needs legitimacy, and they'll only get it by organizing free elections and organizing a very stable constitutional transfer of power from President Karzai to his successor. Without those, I'm, you know, I don't want to go into any uh, specific scenarios, but after, uh, without those two issues, um, the situation is going to become extremely difficult. And yet the findings of your report fly in the face of the kind of assessments we hear from NATO, from ISAF and from the NATO Secretary-General who give a positive picture about transition and the future. Well, I'm tempted to say they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, I don't think we went into this report with an axe to grind. Um, we did spend a lot of time on it, and we, didn't, we did talk to people like NATO and ISAF and um, uh, many, many other officials from various countries. So if they disagree with us, um, that's their right. The Kabul government is very annoyed with us. That's their right. But on the whole, we think this is a very carefully researched piece of uh, work and it's a very meticulous series of guidelines for very technical areas of electoral reform as well. So it's not just uh, getting on our bandwagon and shouting that the end is, the, the sky is falling. So what do you think will happen post-2014 if the situation continues as it is at the moment in Afghanistan? The situation in Afghanistan at the moment is that the government knows itself uh, and in its quite a moment accepts that it needs to work to build popular support. Um, they also need to create an, arm for, an army that is capable of handling 
the country's defense on its own, that is, without um, a large number of foreign troops on the ground. Without those two um, criteria satisfied, it's going to be a very difficult time for them. And is this the big crux, the elections in 2014? Is that the moment where you think there might be a tipping point in Afghanistan? It would be a massive boost to the Afghan government's credibility if it carries out honest, um, transparent elections and a very clearly um, uh, genuine transfer of power from President Karzai to his elected successor. Paul Quinn, judge from the International Crisis Group. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of his assessment? Okay, he's absolutely right, um, particularly that last point. Um, the things that you need in an emerging country, or three things you need in an emerging country, maybe four. One is you need to have, uh, have the outside resources and therefore the help. So the United Kingdom, for example, is going to set up the Sandhurst tight operation in Kabul. That's absolutely essential, not simply to train army officers, but to to train the middle management, the company commander level, the middle middle management that you actually need in any society, whether it's in schools, hospitals, uh, security, or whatever. The second thing, and he mentioned it there, and that is the, the transition from Karzai, who cannot stand. That's the other thing. He has to go. Um, so, is he going to fix who he hands over to? I mean, one of his family, some people might say, but it's unlikely to be able to do that. The important thing is to hand over through a blatantly and obviously uh, clean election. That doesn't look from experience if that's going to happen at all at the moment. But the other thing that it desperately needs, and that is, for example, uh, an independent judiciary. And it has to... In, in, in Afghanistan terms, and it has to happen at all levels. In other words, what you're producing is one security situation that, that, that can cope with all the outside interferences such as uh, terrorism. You need two is to put into uh, uh, education um, and whether it be the, the, the military or wherever to produce that middle management that actually runs a country. And the third thing, you need to continue to have people from the coalition who are there now to remain there, not simply to train, but when you train, you've got to have force protection. And force protection, that will be the interesting one. Will countries that are there now be willing to put vulnerable force protection in uh, after 2014? Well, let's stay with Afghanistan because this week the Foreign Secretary has asserted Britain's commitment to end its Afghan combat mission before 2015. BFBS reporter James Hurst caught up with William Hague at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. He asked him if he was happy that political progress was being made in Afghanistan. Well, I'm, I'm happy that we are pushing that political progress. Uh, of course, it's not possible to say that we've, that we've reached our objectives. Uh, we haven't arrived at a political reconciliation uh, in Afghanistan, but we are working on that. We're not always able, frankly, to announce in public what we're doing uh, about that. Um, but one of the things we're doing is working with the governments of Pakistan and Afghanistan to improve their relations. Uh, the Prime Minister chaired a meeting with the presidents of those two countries in New York. We work with both of them to try to create a better sense of partnership between the Afghans and the Pakistanis. And that is a very important component of an, an eventual political settlement in that region. And there are many other things that we do as well. So we're not neglecting that political work, and it's made possible by the outstanding work of our forces in Afghanistan. If we didn't 
have that pressure maintained on the security side, we wouldn't be able to do anything on the political side. How much more is still to be achieved? Because for some, the worry is, come the end of 2014, the country won't really be ready for us to leave. Well, an enormous amount is still to be achieved. And, and looking far ahead, of course, Afghanistan will still need our help in many ways. Um, but it will be different help. Uh, we will be financing the Afghan National Security Forces, for instance, with more than $100 million a year from the UK, rather than having our own forces in a combat role. We'll be sending development aid. We'll be given the kind of diplomatic support to Afghanistan's relations with its neighbours that I've talked about. We will be doing all of that. But we're absolutely clear that uh, the role of our troops in, in combat, or in anything like the numbers that are there now, comes to an end at the end of 2014. And I think that helps to concentrate the minds of everyone in Afghanistan, that that is going to happen, and that they have to make sure they're ready for that. Although Mitt Romney has suggested that if he were to become US president, he would look at whether the American military mission needs to go on beyond 2014. You're not talking about somebody who, who would be prepared to, to do that even if Mitt Romney were to. Well, decisions still have to be made by any president of the United States and by the government of the United Kingdom about what it is that remains in military terms after 2014. We haven't taken those decisions yet in our National Security Council. Obviously, we're looking carefully at that. Though we have said, for instance, that we will lead the <clears throat> excuse me, officer training academy, the so-called Sandhurst in the Sands. Uh, there may be other ways in which Britain can continue to assist, and that will partly depend on the situation in Afghanistan, on what the United States decides to do in terms of its uh, continued presence and assistance there. So those decisions are still to be made. The Foreign Secretary William Hague speaking to BFBS reporter James Hurst, who joins us now from a studio in Westminster. Hello, James. Hello. Well, this week you were at your third and final party conference of the season. What did the Conservatives have to say about defence? Well, they opened with defence on Sunday. This was the first party conference speech as Defence Secretary for Philip Hammond. I have to say, though, there were some fairly familiar rings to many parts of it. We were told again that we're in Afghanistan for Britain's national security, that the plan is working, that they are transforming defence. We heard again that they've balanced the books from what they say was a £38 billion black hole. Interestingly, though, when he was talking about uh, this transformation of defence, Mr Hammond did tell the conference, I know most people in this hall, most in our party, feel instinctively uncomfortable about the reductions we've had to make in the defence budget. And he was also upfront about the effect he feels it's had on the forces themselves. The truth is that our people have taken a bit of a pounding over the last couple of years as we have dealt with the legacy we inherited from Labour. And I've got a big job on my hands to rebuild their trust and win their confidence. I can't prevent the merging of units or the redundancy of some individuals. What I can do is try to give people clarity and certainty about their individual futures as quickly as possible. Now, to re rebuild that trust and win that confidence, there were no big new policy announcements. There were, though, initiatives, things like a new defence privilege discount card that ties in with uh, the uh, Armed Forces Government, uh, a £5 million investment in Headley Court, increased pupil premium payments to schools, teaching forces, children. It, the press release that actually went alongside the speech was talking about the people of the Armed Forces being the greatest asset, and I think that was the, the drive that he was trying to push in that speech. And, James, the wider message of the Conservative Party conference was 
was that the government still needs to save money on things like welfare. Are they likely to target defence again as well? Well, let's remember there are cuts that have already been announced that still have to be delivered. So we will see more redundancies from the army next year, although not a block of 8,000, as has been suggested by the, uh, the Mail on Sunday. So there are still cuts to be implemented. In terms of further cuts... They've not mentioned defence, uh, but I don't think they would rule, rule it out. They may, though, have left themselves little room for manoeuvre. Philip Hammond did say that he was determined they would repay the professionals in the armed forces by keeping up to their side of the bargain, which he says keeping their word on capabilities they've pledged, delivering the annual increases of 1% a year from 2015 in the equipment budget that they've announced, and never asking troops to carry out tasks that the nation isn't willing or able to equip them for. But remember, Philip Hammond is a man who has said in the past on the aircraft carriers, for for example, when the facts change, the right thing in politics to do is, is to change your direction. So at the moment, they're not targeting defence, but I, I think we're going to have to see what happens down the line. I don't think they would rule it out at this point because they are clear the economy hasn't improved as much as they would like. And Christopher, um, the Chancellor's autumn statement just round the corner, will defence get a mention in that? Very rarely does, and it doesn't have to. Um, when you look at and I can't remember, I think I've been to nearly 20 of these party conference weeks uh, so far. You do not get defence policy discussed in any detail. I mean, the tidbits you know about Headley Court and etc. They can be announced any time. You don't get them at party conferences. Not sure Headley Court would be very happy about that. <laughs> well, it is a tidbit when you look at the defence budget, for example. Indeed. And, and that, that's, the, that's the important part. Um, you also have to remember from, say, what the Tories are talking about, the Conservatives are talking about, um, that if you look at traditionally, what to traditionally say for the past 40 years, uh, most defence defense deficits have come from Tory governments. Uh, probably if you go back to 1968 with the withdrawal from East of Suez and, and, and Dennis Healy's uh, budget, you start from there. That becomes very, very important, and that's a lot to do, to do with industrial. You know, we were talking about British uh, BAE systems earlier on. We're talking about 140,000 jobs, and that's what Labour has always sort of driven its defence policy on, apart from the outside sources. Somebody goes to war with you or, uh, or, or anything like that. The important thing is this. The Chancellor's main message, for example, the one that caught the headlines, is £10 billion, £10 billion have got to come out of the uh, welfare fund. That will not be enough to balance not just the, the, the debt, but also the, the country's it, deficit. There's still another £6 billion to find, and the qu question is we don't know where that will come from in terms of cuts or indeed increases but in But what tax. he does know, and what the Chancellor's office is, is saying to people like me, listen, the Defence Ministry has got a budget which is still in deficit, and the Defence Ministry is about the third highest spender in Whitehall. Therefore, it's vulnerable. Watch out, 2014, that's when it starts. Christopher Lee, stay with us. James Hurst, thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. A former para who, as a teenager, says he was groomed to become a Taliban recruit has told the remarkable story of how he joined the British Army as a way of escaping. Alexander Khan, which isn't his real name, was brought up in the UK, but when his father died, was targeted by jihadists, kidnapped and sent to a recruitment centre for the Taliban in Pakistan. In his book, Orphan of Islam, he writes about his early life, and Alex joins us now. Thanks for your time, Alex. You describe a process of being brainwashed which started very young. How did it start and what happened exactly? Uh, when I was uh, around the age of 10, my father passed away uh, and then I was left to the mercy of my stepmother and her 
cruel uncle, and he was very religious. He had been a student at uh, a madrasa, uh, Islamic school in northwest Pakistan. So he was very religious. So when I was around the age of 11, 12, he actually, uh, on a regular basis, would send me to certain mosques uh, in the northwest of England, and we would learn how to pray, uh, obviously, five times a day. But after these prayers, there would be sermons where certain Islamic individuals would, uh, in a way, try to brainwash us with, with thoughts against the West. And what were your thoughts about what you were being taught at the time? Very confused. Uh, when you're brought up in these isolated communities, you actually start to believe what, what you've been told. And, uh, and I struggled. I was very confused. Uh, uh, another thing I was confused about, Kate, is uh, that uh, my father's from northwest Pakistan, my mother's English, and in these communities, these Pakistani communities, they would call me a non-believer. Uh, the term that they would use would be a kafar, non-believer. So I, I would get that. And there were these uh, certain area of where I used to live. There used to be white boys, and I used to get picked on there, calling certain names because I was Asian. So around that time, it was very confusing for me. And how did you actually end up with this extraordinary story of being kidnapped in Pakistan? Uh, around the age of 13, uh, I was caught. Uh, this was the, I'd, I'd probably say the mid-80s, Kate. And I was hanging around with some, some girls, and you're not, you're not supposed to do that in that culture. Uh, they were white English girls. And we were just playing about, and, you know, they, they, were, they were around the age of 14, 15, in skiving school, and we'd just, just be playing about... Uh, and uh, and I got caught, and this was something that they really were, were horrified by. So, at the age of thirteen, I was sent to Pakistan. They said to me, "Right," uh, my family step family said, "Right, you're going on holiday, Pakistan, a couple of months." And I thought, "Great," you know, I was getting away from this 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 house that I was living in, this cruel uncle. I was sent there, a couple of weeks into my so-called holiday uh, in northwest Pakistan. I was kidnapped by one of my family uh, members, and I was sent to an Islamic school, uh, a madrasa on the Afghan border. And what happened there? The idea was, uh, for this uncle back in England, his idea was to get me out of the house that he was living in. He wanted me out of his way, so he sent me there to be out of his way, to learn the Quran, to become a good Muslim, and it was an Islamic school, so all they taught was the Quran and about Sharia law. Uh, and that's that's what that place was. I was confused. But uh, you you think that you were being groomed for something else, do you? Absolutely. As the time. And why do you think that? As the time went by, uh, I started to uh, uh, I befriended one of the other students there. Uh, now I couldn't speak uh, most of the language that they spoke in this madrasa. They spoke Arabic. The Quran's in Arabic. I could not speak Arabic. The, the language, the Pashto language that, that they speak in Afghanistan and Northwest. Uh, Pakistan, I couldn't really speak that properly as well. Uh, so it was hard to communicate. It was as the months went by, I started to understand, started to communicate with one of the, the students, and he told me, he started to tell me about these uh, Mujahideen fighters that are now the Taliban. And you would see them with their AK 47s, they would come in their vehicles, there'd be a few of them just uh, walking beside the donkey. But on these donkeys, there were crates of, of ammunition and there were weapons, and it was, it was very scary at the time. And you managed to escape, though, didn't you? You hatched a plan, you got out. It was... Uh, I was there for about five, six months, and uh, and I did not like that place at all. 
uh, I had seen, I, had, I was brought up in England, I, I knew there was another side, I knew there was something else out there. And, okay, I was, you know, at the age of three, I was uh, kidnapped. You know, I was abducted by my father from my English mother, and I, and I wanted to find my mother. So I eventually escaped and made my f- way back to my father's village. And then, coming back to the UK, which is what happened later on, you found some kind of um, balance in your life by joining the British Army. W- what did that give you? It must have been an incredible decision to make that, given your upbringing. Absolutely. Uh, it was uh, it was when I was speaking to a youth worker in in the town that I was living in, and he had served in the British Army. Uh, I actually opened up to him about my past, and and it felt quite good. Actually, I felt like a huge weight had lifted off my shoulders. And and he said to me, you know, there's there's this organisation you can join. Uh, you know, the, the British Army. And he told me about the the way the, the, the things that they do in the army. Uh, and one word that really appealed to me was was family. You know, y- you feel part of a family, and I, and I didn't have that. So I, yes, I was I was quite excited at this time. Kate, uh, around the age of eighteen, nineteen, a few of my so-called friends were actually brainwashed, and they were sent to Pakistan for jihad training. They were sponsored by elders in the community. I did not want to go down that path. I knew what happened in northwest Pakistan, and my brief brief visit to Afghanistan. Uh, so I did the opposite. I joined the British Army and served in one of the, the airborne regiments within 16 Air Assault Brigade. Indeed. Um, Alex Khan, thank you for telling us about your story. I know there's much more to talk about, and there will be another book out on that, but uh, it'll be good to talk to you again, and, and thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, and just before we go, um, Christopher, um, the Prime Minister has announced today a government pledge of millions of pounds to commemorate the centenary of the First World War. What do you think should be done to mark this? How should the money be spent? Um, it's not so much the money, I think, it's the attitudes. Um, there is a movement which was is now starting that on the day, on uh, Remembrance Sunday 2014, that every single shop in the country should be closed for the whole day, that all sorts of organisations that would have sport, for example, like First Division, Premier Division football, no, that's going to be cut. That's the idea. And make people remember that when we say they gave their lives, they didn't, they were taken away. And on that note, there's not much more to say, I think, today. Thank you very much for your time and to all of our guests today. We'll be back the same time next week. Bye-bye for now.